Hello and welcome to the May 15th, 2019 edition of Mr. Joe's Bipolar Podcast. My name is Mr. Joe. This is my neighborhood. This is my life. But this is our podcast journey. Welcome to Mr. Joe's Bipolar Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Mr. Joe's Bipolar Podcast. It is awesome to have everybody here with me today, and of course, it's always wonderful to be out there with you as well. And it's simply wonderful that I have this additional opportunity to podcast very close to the uh, most recent podcast that I produce. What are we on here? We're at Wednesday. And uh, Mr. Joe uh, just recently produced one on Monday. So makes me very happy to be back um, in terms of my consistency, even though it might be just for this week. Um, I don't want to say things have settled down by any stretch of the imagination, but I still have that mentality where the hypomania has just made me not care. And again... When I say I don't care, it means that I still continue to do what I need to do. I I work above and beyond. I exceed all my personal expectations and limitations. But if I fail, I just don't care. And that is mainly because of my hypomania, like I discussed yesterday. Um, And quite honestly, some of it stems from my confidence that is derived from the hypomania, essentially speaking volume and saying this. Whatever I haven't achieved, I know at some point I'm going to achieve because really nobody could do it better than me. And regardless of the circumstance or the situation, that's what my mind has been telling me. And it's an overconfident, conceited, cocky way to think and I recognize that it's probably not the most normal way to react to anything, really, in life. Especially stress. Um, Now, I'm not saying that you should succumb to stress and let it take hold of you, but sometimes when you are just above and beyond in terms of what you are really able to accomplish and you think that you can do more... Well, unfortunately for Mr. Joe, what ends up happening is my mind just takes off in 500 different directions and then I start to attack different things at different times that have different levels of importance and before you know it, I'm not achieving anything at all. And thank goodness I'm not there. So right now I remain relatively productive in hypomania, don't care about a damn thing, but again, it's not a don't care that I'm just going to let life pass me by and not do anything. That's not what I mean. I guess to summarize it, it's that common cliche, it is what it is, and we cannot control things that are not in our control. (laughs) As simple as that. You know, I'm going to give you an example. Um, I have been desperately trying to fill a position uh, for one of my... Uh, how do we put it, one of my plants, let's put it that way, one of my plant locations. Very important that I fill this position because ultimately what it's done 
is it's impacted my life in several ways. One, because I have been the one covering that position, um, regardless of the fact that I oversee and operate every aspect of this business. There is nobody else to answer to in this business. Every single person that works as a part of my business answers to me. That's it. Doesn't matter what level they're at. Doesn't matter what their title is. They answer to me because this is my program. And because it's my program and because I give a crap about my program and I want to see it succeed, there are certain things that regardless of the fact whether I have staff or not, I have to make sure they're done. So in this one particular situation, which really involves the direct service of what we refer to as applied behavior analysis to a specific child, I have nobody to fill that position, mainly because of the location and time of day. So I've been doing it. Again, it's impacted my life in the sense where I'm getting home late, my wife hasn't been able to work, at least her part-time stuff. And most importantly, from a business perspective, it's, it's isolated me in a way where I'm kind of stuck in this one spot and I can't oversee the additional plants that I oversee. So it's almost like I'm a little worried that things are going to start to crumble in other places. They have not as of yet, but I need staff. And the, um, the company has worked incredibly hard to assist me in finding somebody. And guess what? They found me somebody last week. And I was super excited to have this young man be a part of the team. As a matter of fact, he actually missed the first interview and did not make a phone call, did not let us know why, um, which immediately for me, that eliminated him from any kind of um, employment opportunity for me to even consider him. However, a couple of days later, he called the HR department and he said along the line something like this. This is one of the most embarrassing phone calls that I've ever had to make, but I am so interested in this position that I figured I might as well give a call. It can't hurt. I completely forgot about our interview with Mr. Joe because of my other job. Things got too crazy and I, I just, I never made it in and I completely forgot. Now, I gave him the benefit of the doubt mainly because... We had just planned for that interview the day before. It was kind of a spur-of-the-moment uh, interview, but it kind of rubbed me the wrong way. But at the same token, I found it um, very encouraging, very positive, very um, showing a lot of courage to actually make that phone call. And not only make that phone call, but to be honest, I mean, I think that's a great thing. You know, it wasn't that my grandmother died or the dog got hit or, you know, my kids are sick. It, it was, it was, I forgot and I'm embarrassed, but I am scared to miss out on this opportunity. So please give me another chance. Well, that day he called, I gave him another chance and he was in my office within a half hour. I interviewed him. I loved him. He was great. Couldn't wait to get him started. And Monday of this week, he was to start. Uh, confirmed with him over the weekend that he would start on Monday, uh, confirmed with him on Monday morning that he would arrive at the location at one particular time, 
And uh, he, he confirmed that. It was great. Just great. And uh, it was actually awesome because my wife's birthday happened to be on the first day of work where this gentleman was starting. So I said to myself, you know what? I could finally leave early and leave my, I guess you would call her my manager of this location, to close up rather than me closing up every night. At least for this night so I could celebrate my wife's birthday. Well, the time came or at least close to the time that he was supposed to arrive, and I get a text message from this young man that says, Joe, you're going to kill me, but I am not going to make it today. <laughs> so when I first read the message, I was very taken back. I said to myself, man, it doesn't matter how long I've known somebody, especially if they're my boss. I never start out a text message on my first day of work or any day of work with, you're going to kill me. It's just very unprofessional. It just doesn't sound right. It's 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 a buddy-buddy thing to say. And with all due respect, you're not my buddy yet. Um, I know I am very friendly and I make it a warm environment. And I actually tell everybody that I am their boss on paper and that's about it. Other than that, I trust them. I want them to be a part of the team and all our ideas and opinions are of equal value. So, you know, of course I said that to this young man as well. Now, I don't know if he took that out of context and thought it would be okay to say that to me. But I let it slide and I said, well, you know, you can't do this. Like on the last minute, we have families and children that are waiting. He apologized profusely. And I said, well, listen, if you can make it here in an hour and a half, I'll even accept that just to get you started and you know, get this ball rolling. And he said, thank you so much for giving me this other opportunity. It almost sounded like the interview. And then he sent me a text after that that said, if you don't think this is going to work out, I completely understand. <laughs> and right then and there, I said to myself, well, there's, there's his attempt to get out of this. And I refused to answer that question. I said, no. I said, I'll see you at 4.30 or whatever time it was. So anyway, 4.45 rolls around, and this young man is still not here. So what does Mr. Joe do? He texts him, and I say to him, uh, you know, am I waiting for you? Are you coming? What, what's the story here? And I do not even get a response. So Monday evening, I worked until the very bitter end of the day. Um, and when I say bitter end, I don't mean an eight-hour workday. It means that I went above and beyond my workday in order to essentially cover what this young man missed and um, made it home for my wife's birthday incredibly late. So I texted him and called him the very next day, which would have been yesterday, and I said, you know, dummy, which of course I didn't call him dummy, but we'll call him dummy for the sake of this podcast, dummy, for the sake of two beautiful children and a wonderful family, and this family happens to have two kids, and one of the kids he was going to be with, for the sake of two beautiful children, can you please let me know if you will be arriving to work today for your very first day, although it was supposed to be yesterday. Um, it's very important that I know because I have you on the schedule, blah, blah, blah. No response. No response. So He's gone. He's gone. And normally... I would be completely bent out of shape. And I'm not going to lie. Initially, I was pretty pissed off. But 
even though it's going to continue to impact me, and I now I have to search for another person, probably going to have to stay, well, essentially I am going to have to stay late. Nothing has changed because of what this man did to me. And what's even more interesting is over the weekend, he was required to fill out onboarding paperwork, and he finished it probably quicker than anybody that I've ever hired. Um, you know, he expressed how excited he was to work. None of it makes sense to me. It really, really does not. So, um, but again, the overall attitude that I would normally have would be pissed off. And I have now taken that other approach as to say, I don't care. And again, that doesn't mean that I don't care about the business or the families or the children or my schedule. I just don't care because it'll work out. So that's been my new motto. Um, you know, everything seems to work out, which is something that I used to believe in a very long time ago, and I used to tie that to my religious beliefs as well. Um, I was very into my religion, and under the impression that, you know, everything happens for a reason, and in the end, things will be okay. Um, I continue to try to invest my time into my religion, even though it's very, very limited. Um, it's almost embarrassing, but I do speak to what I believe in to be God. Um, but nevertheless, I, um, I know this, that when I say things will be okay, this is not me tying it into my religious beliefs. This is, again, I believe me just being hypomanic, and I would not be shocked if in a week from now all these things that are not bothering me actually make me feel sick to my stomach and stress me out to the point where I end up having some kind of a nervous breakdown or swing into some kind of a um, mood, territory of a mood, whether it be high-impact high mania or just low-down depression, who knows. But for right now... I'm just going to go with it. That's really what it comes down to. So, nevertheless, I apologize. It took me a few minutes to get into this podcast, but um, I only did one of these podcasts in the past, and I thought it was time now to uh, do another one, mainly because I was absent for so long, and when you're absent for a while, or at least from Mr. Joe's perspective, when I come back to my emails, there's quite a few. And I check them every day. That doesn't mean I read them every day. I try my best too, but I was definitely way behind in terms of reading them because most of them are extensive. But please know, when you do send an email, I read every single solitary word. And if you have sent an email, just to let you know, I am completely all caught up now. So if you haven't received a response from me yet, you will receive one quite soon. With that being said, I went to a flooded inbox of questions, and I thought it was important that Mr. Joe did what we call Mr. Joe's Questions and Answers Part 2, or Mr. Joe's Q&A Part 2. Um, so I actually have a piece of paper in here in front of me right now, which I know I don't often have. Um, and when I do, I make mention of it just in case you hear this moving around. Um, and what I did was I pulled... One, two, three, four questions out from my email. Rather than reading the entire email, I kind of just pulled the questions out from the emails because um, two of these emails were extremely private um, and not something that I really want to discuss. But 
this question had also been asked in different forms and different ways by several other people. So I'm going to answer all four of them. And uh, as always, I'll give you my honest thoughts, my honest feedback. And, um, you know, we take it from there. <laughs> if you have further questions or follow-up questions, of course, you could always reach out to Mr. Joe BP at yahoo.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at Mr. Bipolar Joe. Now, question number one. Since being diagnosed with bipolar disorder, who has been your biggest supporter? And I got to tell you, I don't even know. I may have answered this in Q&A part one, but nevertheless, it, it got my attention. Again, if I have answered it already, and if I did, I apologize um, for going over this again. Without a doubt, I have definitely spoken about this throughout many of my podcasts. Uh, at least I've certainly spoken about the people that were not my biggest supporters, who I thought might have been, including my mother and father. With that being said, I do know deep down in my heart that my parents want nothing but the, but the best for me. They never want to see me hurt. They never want to see me struggling. Problem is, is they just can't get their heads out of their own you-know-what in order to address anything that might um, become a medical concern with me or a mental health concern with me. They simply could just check in, tell me that they love me, and um, that's about it. They really are not a support system. My sister has always been a huge supporter of me. That goes without saying. Uh, My friends, far and few in between, and mainly because they just don't get it, but I've spoken many times about the text message thread that I have with my buddies, and they do their best to be supportive, but deep down inside I know that they are unaware of what really goes on in Mr. Joe's mind, and um, so they do their best. Now, I apologize if my microphone is moving all over the place right now. I'm a little uncomfortable. Um, My biggest supporter, without a shadow of a doubt, is my wife. That goes without saying... I've mentioned it many, many times, um, and probably the most abused of all the people that have either supported me, attempted to support me, or been a part of my mental health journey would also be my wife. So ironically, the person that has been abused the most and tortured the most has become my biggest supporter. And guys, that's really, I mean... As cliche as this sounds, that's really what you call love uh, because it's not easy to remain with a wackadoo such as myself. I do believe in my heart that had I have not addressed my behaviors of self-injury and the horrible delusions and hallucinations that were happening to me on an ongoing basis um, and how severe my mixed episodes and rapid cycling started to get, essentially right after my son was born, I believe, or before my son was born. Um, Then again, I don't even remember. We're going back to November 2017. I've made mention of that date many, many times because that was the turning point. That was when I started podcasting, when um, essentially I stopped smoking marijuana, uh, went to see a doctor, and changed my life for the better. And I got to tell you, if I did not proceed to do that, there is no doubt in my mind that, not that my wife would have wanted to leave me, but I don't think any human being on this earth could have remained with a person such as myself. I mean, I honestly believe that. 
Um, and even if she did, it would not have ended nicely. And what I mean by that is she might have gotten hurt or I might have gotten hurt um, for many different reasons. And I'm not going to get into that, uh, whether it be violence or you know, suicide or um, you know, me running away, whatever it is. I mean, so many things could have potentially gone wrong. But instead, here we have my wife who has watched me on my hands and knees or really flat on the floor like a baby, crying hysterically, hyperventilating, depressed, unable to move, manic to the point where she's watched me run up on to car hoods and jump on them like a maniac, you know, literally like a maniac. Um, she's watched me start fights. She's watched me flip out in the middle of a street on people driving because I felt like they got in my way. Meanwhile, I was in the middle of the street. Um, she has watched me, God, I mean, really not have a care in the world about anything for a long, long time. And deep down inside, I think she knew, and I do know this, that I am a relatively good person, not just based on what I do for a living, because anybody could turn around and say, um, you know, oh, I take care of kids, or I'm a vet veterinarian, or, you know, I love animals, and so that makes me a good person. That, that doesn't make a person a good person, because there are people that work with children and beat the crap out of them. Children, you know, people that work with children and, and essentially abuse them and neglect them. So that, that means nothing. Uh, but I guess my wife was able to pin down the underlying goodness within Mr. Joe and recognize that if, with the proper help, the, out, the good would outweigh the bad, uh, then it would be well worth staying in a relationship with me. And we stuck it through and I got the help that I needed. And now, in addition to my two older children, I have a wonderfully beautiful family with my wife that includes another set of a boy and a girl. <laughs> Just flip-flopped around with the boy older and the girl younger. And, um, you know, it's, it's extremely amazing if that's any kind of a combination of words that Mr. Joe is even would want to use because amazing is just well enough of a descriptive word to, to speak on the family dynamics that my wife and I have in terms of the love that we offer our children, the love that she offers my older children. Uh, it's just amazing. So, you know, could not be happier when it comes to that. Um, so yes, my wife is my biggest supporter. And if you wanted to know who my biggest non-supporter was, <laughs> I guess you could say that would be my ex-wife. And we don't need to get into detail with that one. You just, just assume that she's at home right now with a broomstick, you know, stirring a pot of, um, you know, witch soup or whatever. And, you know, got her hat on and is just wishing death upon me because I do believe that she does wish death any way other than a suicide just so she could collect um, life insurance. But that's neither here nor there. Okay, number two. Do you ever worry about your children's future when it comes to mental health? Awesome question. Awesome question. And the short answer is yes. I absolutely do. Um, do I worry now the way that I used to, which was literally on an everyday, all-day basis? No, I don't. I don't. Not at all. 
Um, but there are certain things that occur within my children that certainly lead me to worry. And a lot of times it's very hard for me to decipher or separate the two as to whether it's just normal children things that people do, that kids do, or if it's part of a mental illness that is underlying or that is going to potentially emerge at some point in time. I use little Mickey as an example. He's a maniac. You know, the energy in that young man is just... I've never seen anything like it. His temper tantrums are above and beyond anything that I've ever seen. His intelligence level, and again, not because he's my son, but at two years old, when you are speaking in full paragraph sentences and able to have a adult conversation back and forth, there is a bit of genius that goes on there. Um, and I believe because of his intelligence level, he... Um, he becomes a bit more of a behavior problem. And that's very typical, as a matter of fact, with autism. A lot of times we tend to think that our children with autism, the lower functioning ones, are more of a difficult um, child to deal with or a bigger problem to solve. And believe it or not, it's usually the opposite. The ones that are more intelligent, more higher functioning, smarter, because those are the ones that can manipulate us. And they're still capable of being bad. And when you combine the manipulation aspect with the bad aspect, you know, it could be a little bit disturbing. So because my son is so smart at such a young age, he wants what he wants. And if he doesn't get it, he has a temper tantrum. And there are times where he gets so angry and cries for so long that I can't help but say to myself, is this an indication not only of uh, attention deficit disorder and hyperactivity, but... Is it an indication of a mood disorder? Um, you know, and the problem is, because he's so smart, a lot of times, whatever he might have done, quote-unquote, bad, he'll usually come up with something extremely intelligent later on, or something cute, or some way in which he makes Mr. Joe, Joe um, decide to forget about the, the bad things that he's done. But again, that's my part of my problem when it comes to parenting. <laughs> um so yeah, I definitely I'm concerned about my children, just not on an ongoing basis. My big girl, um, Sarah Lee, definitely dealt with panic attacks for about a year, and Mr. Joe uh, sent her away to a, well, not away, but had her uh, speak with a therapist, and that didn't help, so, and I've spoken about this in the past as well, Mr. Joe took it upon himself to be my daughter's therapist and work her through that situation, and I have to say, thank goodness, there has not been a single panic attack since. Um, but, you know, that, that concerns me also, because she was relatively young when that was going on. And, you know, what did she have to be anxious about? Uh, maybe the fact that her mother and father couldn't get along, still can't. I don't know. You know, I don't know what was on her mind, but I do know that my little girl was having panic attacks. Well, my big girl now. So that scared me. And then I look at my, um, my big guy, Junior. My son, you know, I think to myself, you know, is this young man depressed? Uh, is this something that I have to be concerned about because he just stays in his room? Well, here's what happens, guys, okay? If you want to take all three of those kitties and take a look at them, well, Sarah Lee, anxiety, guess what? Unfortunately, most teenagers or teens-to-be do experience anxiety in this world that we live in because there are so many... Things that um, we did not grow up with, at least in my generation, in terms of the social media and things of that nature. So, my God, anxiety, 
I, I believe is almost a normal part of life now when it comes to growing up. So is she mentally ill or is it just part of life? Um, my older son, you know, staying in his room, isolated like Mr. Joe once was. However, if you take a real good peek through his door crack, you're going to see a pair of headphones on and him clicking away and, you know, joysticking away over at that stupid game. So is it a mental illness? Is it depression emerging? Or is it just him, like every other teenage boy on this planet who is into gaming? Um, is he just completely addicted and overwhelmed with that? You know, or is it a mental illness? I, I just can't take the games anymore, guys. It's really starting to get to me. At least I can limit it when he's staying with me in, in, in my home, which is also his home, but as in comparison to where he lives with his mother, where she does not do a single thing in terms of monitoring anything that that young man does. Um, the only thing she really likes to do, my ex-wife, is use my children to hurt me. Um, a quick example, yesterday I talked to my son, and he told me he was going to urgent care for x-rays because he hurt his shin. I said, what in the world are you talking about? Well, I fell on my bike on Saturday. I said, well, it's Tuesday. Mom thinks it's broken. I said, can you walk? Yes. Can you stand? Yes. Didn't you go to open gym yesterday to play basketball? Yes. It's not broken. Well, Mom thinks it is. And you know what? Guess what? I'm not paying this portion of the bill because I don't agree with it. And she's not supposed to make decisions like that without conferring with me first. And what does Mr. Joe do? Every time she does it, I just pay. I just pay. But you know what? Based on the fact that she served me, and I will be going to court relatively soon to have the child uh, support modification. By the way, a wave of anxiety just came over me while I thought about that. So I will say this. The... Uh, Three words, I don't care, certainly doesn't pertain to that situation. But nevertheless, she's a witch and she just tries to hurt me with my children because she likes when she can hand me receipts that have extra expenses. So um, I was able to address my ex-wife in two of these wonderful questions in both instances, explaining what a piece of garbage she is. And I apologize for speaking this way, but this is just the way that I feel. And um, believe me, if you knew her and watched her in action, you would feel the exact same way. Um, by the way, in terms of my little two-month-old, she's following suit in terms of her intelligence level. I mean, the little girl is actually just about to roll, roll over. She's making all kinds of sounds that my son was not even making at a year and a half old. I mean, and she's two months old. It's just incredible. She laughs. She engages in eye contact. She's social. I mean, it's just, it's wild. And even the uh, pediatrician today told my wife, because they had a wellness visit, that she is well above and beyond her age in terms of how she is developing, which is, you know, again, is it good or is it bad? <laughs> I don't know. Is she going to be like my little guy when she gets older, Bobby? You know, drive me nuts? I don't know. But in the end, it all... The only thing that matters really, and again, cliche, is that they're healthy. And right now, as far as I know, they are healthy. Will they be unhealthy with a mental illness down the line? It's very possible, and it does concern me. So yes, I do worry about it. But like I used to, which was every day, all day, I do not anymore. I try to look at the good things that are happening in their lives and the positive things and hopefully 
make a collection of all those things, put them together and say to myself, you know what, no chance of a mental illness. <laughs> but again, we all know that's unfortunately not always the way it works. All right. Question number three. Hmm, when do you feel most vulnerable to end up back in a mental hospital when you are manic or depressed? Wow. I forgot that I even took this one, to be honest with you. Most vulnerable. Well, I guess, you know, you could translate that into being scared or concerned or just thinking I'm going to head back to a hospital based on the way that I feel. Um, you know, if you think back to many, many, many moons ago, Mr. Joe went over the diagnostic criteria of mania and bipolar disorder. And, you know, most of the times, if not all of the times, when a intense manic episode occurs, it almost always ends in hospitalization. Um, it did so with Mr. Joe, but the difference is with that, you don't always know that you're going, if that makes any sense. Like, I had no idea that I was headed there. I really didn't, because you're just so, you're so above and beyond the normal threshold when it comes to stability and, you know, um, your overall mood or mindset, because you're hyper, you're crazy, you're alive, you're overconfident, you're engaging in things that you normally wouldn't engage in, and you just don't care about anything. You're impulsive. Um, so you don't really know that you might be vulnerable at that time. So when I am manic, I very rarely feel vulnerable. The only way that I would feel vulnerable when I was manic is if, is if I was to be reminded of what happened to me when I was hospitalized for 15 days uh, when I tried to commit suicide the first time. Um, so if I'm being honest, depression is probably when I feel most vulnerable um, to end up back in the hospital. And here is why. And this is such an interesting answer, if I do say so myself. I feel most vulnerable when I'm depressed to end up back into a hospital because I don't want to do anything for myself. And I almost start to envision people taking care of me the way that I was taken care of in that hospital. Um, you know, it was almost like, you know, I, I long for that structure when I'm depressed. And I say to myself, well, there's only really one place that I can get that, and that's in a hospital. So that feeling, to, to be honest, makes me vulnerable because deep down inside I know that's the only place that I could really get better. At least that's what I feel at that particular time. And then... Then my insecurities and my um, overall attitude in terms of, man, I don't want to do a damn thing. Almost like my mother, my grandmother, and my great-grandmother. I mean, my grandmother and great-grandmother, they stopped walking at a very young age. They just wanted to sit in a, in a wheelchair and be wheeled around. You know, I think it would be great when I'm depressed to just be fed. Not that I always want to eat, but, you know, just circle, circle a... Um, a spot on the menu and choose your food. You know, um, you got to go to therapy. Well, you walk two rooms down, not a very far walk because your hospital bed is right there and the therapist is right over there. Um, essentially, you're catered to a lot of times. Uh, at least that's the way that you feel until you finally discover that you're there to do work and get the hell out. Um, and then before you know it, you find yourself playing chair volleyball and 
um, you know, working towards getting back out into the real world. Uh, so vulnerable, where I think I'm going to end up back in the loony bin, so to speak, the wackadoo ward, without a doubt, um, when I am depressed. And that is mainly because I cannot analyze my own emotions, for the most part, when I am manic. And when I'm depressed, I just want to be taken care of. And there's no better place to have that done than when you're in a hospital. Let's, let's face it, everybody. When you're in a hospital and you can't pick your head up off a pillow and all you want to do is sleep because you are so miserable and depressed, there is nobody there to really judge you. There's no one. I mean, your kids are not there, your wife, your husband, no one's there. It doesn't mean they're going to allow it the entire stay, otherwise you'll never get out of there. Um, but, you know, that is one thing that I certainly enjoyed, at least in the beginning, was that I could keep my head under those pillows, uh, under those blankets, on that pillow, and, you know, not talk to a single person. So, it's almost like a sense of security and safety as well, which, you know, is why you become vulnerable, when, at least when Mr. Joe is depressed. Uh, so I hope uh, that answers that question. Um, and finally, question number four. If you could pick just one side effect to get rid of from the medication you take, what would it be? I have to tell you, luckily, in terms of side effects, and we've spoken about this many times, the Lamictal and the Welbutrin seem to agree very much so with Mr. Joe in terms of all the um, side effects that that can unfortunately occur. Um, I, very, very minor ones in the beginning. Um, now, when I did take Wellbutrin and increased my dose and really didn't need it, I felt severe side effects such as headaches and nausea and, you know, anxiety and um, fogginess and all those things that really just would not go away. No matter how long I stayed on it, just would not go away. And then when I finally needed that increase, I didn't feel a single side effect. So my medication remedy, and I have not taken my Abilify at all. It just sits in the closet because I feel as if I get more depressed when I take it. And I've reviewed that in the past. If I was to just zone in on Abilify and I was still on that stuff, I think the day after or the morning after taking it in the morning is probably the one thing that I'd like to get rid of in terms of that dragging feeling. I just literally could not get up, couldn't function, um, but no longer take that. So the only thing that I could really address would be the only side effect that I have right now, and that is not a lack or a complete loss of sexual drive. It's just not, um, it's not where it once was. And I got to tell you, it, it, it's either not where it once was because it's, the medication is doing it to me or the medication has brought me down to a normal level. And, you know, most guys just think this way and not the way that I used to think that, you know, every single thing that passed me, I wanted a piece of. You know, I, I still recall being younger and actually driving around in circles and parking lots just to look at women. I mean, really. You know, and I'm sure a few of the guys out there have done that. Uh, I wouldn't do it now. And I say to myself, is that because I'm older and more mature and medicated? Um, or is that just because 
um, I have no desire to do that. I, I don't know the answer. I mean, I don't know whether it's normal or not, but what I do know is that, man, I know this. Mr. Joe, back in the day, could literally engage in sexual activities, not just once a day, but multiple times a day. Did not matter to me. There was never a time where I was not in the mood, didn't want it. Um, sadly enough, way before my wife, who I am happily married to now, really didn't matter to me who it was with, um, especially if I was drinking or on under the influence of drugs. Um, and, and you know what? To be honest with you, man, when those manic times were as high as that I could possibly be, you know, my 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 entire perception, my entire judgment was completely warped and off. So I didn't need a drink. I didn't have to have what we call beer goggles to be um, attracted to a woman because I just ran around manic all the time. So maybe, just maybe, I am back down to what should be considered to be a normal level of sexual, um, I don't want to say activity, but sexual desire. Then again, there is just something that tells me it's just not where it should be. Um, I certainly don't want to be the way that I once was and want to, you know, be with every woman that I meet and see because that would clearly indicate to me that I was not on the right medication at all. But at the same token, um, I'd like to be a little bit more um, sexually active and, and or at least... At least want to, you know, I never had a problem initiating anything with any woman. And my wife has never, ever given me the feeling to be uncomfortable in terms of initiating anything to her. Um, so if anything, that that has certainly decreased since my medication. I just kind of wish I had that ability to initiate more. And I, I don't because, unfortunately, many times, I don't want to say things are more important than sex. But sometimes my mind is just so screwed up that I really honestly can't think of it. And it, it, to me, it's not enjoyable. To me, during the times where I'm really struggling, it appears to be work. It really does. And it scares me. And, I, you know, all of those things, you know, initiating and engaging. And none of it, none of it is, is, is fun for me. But I have to be in a real down mood in order to feel that. And unfortunately... You know, when I consider myself not to be manic or depressed and right in the middle, I guess, I guess I'm either at the correct functioning level or I'm just not where I should be. And um, either way, I kind of wish that it came back a little bit. So I know I've gone off on quite a bit of a tangent and really what it comes down to is the one side effect that I wish, and I would imagine many men feel this way, especially if you're taking SSRIs and things of that nature that really have an impact on your sexual, you know, cause sexual dysfunction. Um, I have a feeling that many of our men uh, kind of wish that that side effect would go away. And then unfortunately, there are many of our men, you know, it's almost like when you haven't done it for so long and you have no desire because your chemicals have now um, caused you to feel that way ultimately, you know, it's like you're not missing anything. So some of us probably feel like, oh, God, I wish I had that feeling back. And then the vast majority of us are saying, well, who cares? I don't feel like doing it anyway, so I'm not missing anything. So, um, And we all know as human beings, that's not really the way that it's supposed to be, especially if we're in love and we have a partner. And um, But hopefully if you do 
um, have a partner with bipolar disorder and they're struggling right now in terms of their sexual activity or their dysfunction or whatever it might be. You know, you need to be patient with that particular person. And unfortunately, also, sometimes we have to weigh the pros and the cons and we say to ourselves, you know what, if I come off this medication, yes, I am going to be able to engage in sexual activity once again, but there's a very good chance that I also will end up dead in three days from depression and committing suicide or being in a hospital um, because I ran into my local supermarket and decided to steal 15 different items and thought I could get away with it. (laughs) Um, So now either I'm in jail or I'm in a hospital. So um, that's really, really what it comes down to ultimately. Um, So I got a lot of questions, guys, a lot of questions, a lot more questions to answer. I picked these three. Uh, I don't know if they were the best ones. I kind of just went randomly, just went in there, picked them out. Believe it or not, the two that were asked on multiple occasions happened to be the very first question, uh, who was my biggest supporter, and the other one that was asked um, was uh, in multiple different versions and ways was actually the side effects just now, which we addressed. So, um, you know, because there were so many requests for that, I just attended to those two questions and pulled the others out of a hat. But we got lots more to do. And to be honest with you, I, I like the Mr. Joe Q&A. And um, it, it's it's fun for me. It really is. Uh, it does bring back certainly a, a bunch of memories a lot of times. Some good, some bad. Unfortunately, a lot more bad than good. Um, but that's important. It's important for me to share that with everybody and important for me to share my experiences as we've spoken about so many times. And, you know, what's really the most important is the fact that you are able to hear Mr. Joe's voice, hear my reports, hear my stories, hear my observations, hear my trials and tribulations, and hopefully recognize that you're not alone. If you are living with a mental illness and you're doing well, I ask that you continue to work hard. If you love or you care about somebody with a mental illness, I ask that you continue to support that person in the very best way that you know how. And if you are struggling right now with a mental illness, I ask that you continue to fight, continue to battle, and most importantly, soldier on. Thank you so much for listening to Mr. Joe's Bipolar Podcast. Everybody have a great day, and I will talk to you again real soon.